You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us the written word that we can study together this morning. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers us to understand. And so, Father, we're praying for that type of empowerment this morning. Father, I pray that we would comprehend the truth that you're trying to communicate to us today. Father, I pray that that would translate into our daily lives as we strive to be a church that is fighting sin that's living in the victory of sin that you've promised us in Romans chapter 6. Father, I pray that we would understand today what it means to be set free from the law, that that would have real uh, meaning and application in our life moving forward. Um, Father, I pray that you would continue to give us insight into our own fight against sin. Um, Father, I pray that we would not uh, yield our members, that we would not give Uh, our bodies as weapons to be used by the enemy. But instead, Father, we would yield ourselves to righteousness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Romans chapter 7 this morning. um, We have been working through this entire book chapter by chapter, so taking a week to discuss each chapter. Told you up front, that means that there's going to be a lot left to be desired for you to understand what's going on in the book of Romans. So because we're not going verse by verse, There's things that we're only touching on a little bit, and so that leaves a lot for you to go back and study on your own to glean more truth. Uh, But just a quick recap, Romans 1, we said, talked about uh, God's condemnation, his rightful condemnation towards people that we would generally define as evil, people that are guilty of gross-type sins across the board, people that even lost people would say those people deserve to go to hell. So, there's, there's that perspective in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the person who's striving to be moral, striving to be a good person, is guilty before God. That in his striving to be moral, he compares himself to other people. And he says, I'm good in God's eyes because I'm better than so-and-so. And we said that Paul highlights the fact that because he's so good at seeing sin in the lives of others, he condemns himself. Because if he's so good at seeing sin, he should see his own sin and see that he's guilty before God. We also said at the end of Romans chapter 2, it tells us that the religious person's guilty. Specifically, in that context, the Jewish person. But we took it a step further to the uh, Bible Belt Southern person who goes to church, grew up in a Christian family, maybe even went to a Christian school. That person is guilty before God. He's not saved based on his heritage. He is guilty, even though he has all this knowledge about God, until he submits to that knowledge, he is guilty before God. Romans chapter 3, if you don't see yourself in any of those categories, Romans chapter 3 puts everybody into a big category and says everybody is guilty before God. That God's going to judge us based on the knowledge that we have, whether that's knowledge in our hearts or whether we have the written word. So even the guy in Africa who does not know about Christ is guilty before God because he has a knowledge of God in his heart and he rejects that knowledge. We said that everyone stands guilty before God, that no one can work their way to heaven, no one can be obedient to the law that they have, that we all fall short of God's standard. But Romans 3.21 tells us there's another way, that God has made a way for us to be uh, righteous in his eyes, and that's through the work of Jesus Christ. And so the rest of Romans chapter 3 is all the good news that comes from the gospel. Romans chapter 4 is an example of how someone uh, gets saved through faith. It's the story of Abraham and how Abraham was not saved by circumcision. He was not saved uh, by keeping the law. He was not saved because he was the father of the Jewish race. He was saved because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans chapter 5, we said that it, it uh, describes two Adams. We have Adam in the garden and then Christ as the second Adam and that Adam is guilty of sin We all become sinful. Christ comes and is perfect for us. And when we submit to Christ, his perfection comes to us. So we're sinners because of Adam. We're made righteous now in God's eyes because of what Christ accomplishes in our life. And then Romans chapter 6, we looked at last week. We said that it describes us being dead to sin and enslaved to God. The idea there is that you can't enjoy sin and salvation. It's the first real discussion on sanctification in Romans, uh, in the book of Romans. We define sanctification as that progressive work where the believer and the Holy Spirit are working together in partnership to become less sinful and more like Christ. So the Holy Spirit empowers us, but we have a role to play. 
We saw that in Romans chapter 6. We're not to submit ourselves to sin. We're to submit ourselves to righteousness. So it's a progressive work. Holy Spirit and the believer working together to be less sinful, more Christ-like. It's different for believers. So some of us are more sanctified than others. When we talk about justification, being declared righteous, being declared perfect in God's eyes, that's equal for all Christians. We're all right in God's eyes. We're all perfect in God's eyes if we're believers this morning. We are not all sanctified to the same level as other believers in this room, though. That's a progressive work that happens with the Holy Spirit working in our life. We said the key to understanding what it means to be dead to sin and united with Christ is to understand that we've escaped that bondage to sin. And we've escaped in such a way that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we can now choose to not give in to temptation. There's a way for us to escape. We're not in bondage to sin. We're not enslaved to sin. We've been set free from sin. We can now live empowered, victorious lives over sin. We said that he gave us three words last week. We're to know that we're dead to sin. I told you that there's a Uh, an aspect of our sanctification where we have to know scriptural truth if we're going to be sanctified. We have to know the depths of scripture. And I challenge those of you that have been with us for a while now, if you can't have a conversation that lasts longer than 15 minutes about justification, you don't know the doctrine of justification like you need to. You have to know biblical truth if it's going to be lived out in your life. Paul goes on to say, not only do you know it, you have to reckon it to be true, meaning I know it, and I also know that it's true about me. I'm submitting to it. And then that third word that he uses in Romans chapter 6 is we have to yield ourselves to righteousness. We have to cut off the aspect of giving ourselves for sinful purposes. We said that the actual language there is that we give ourselves as weapons. We give our weapons over to the enemy. We say, Satan, use my body for sinful purposes. Paul says, stop doing that and start giving your bodies to righteousness. Use your weapons for God's glory. And that brings us into Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 6, we're dead to sin. Romans chapter 7, we're dead to the law. Instead, we're spirit-filled now. We're dead to the law. And what we're going to see here in chapter 7 is that the law is good, but it has to be viewed in the proper perspective. If we're going to see the law is good in the life of a believer, and in the life of a non-believer, it has to be viewed from the right perspective. Now, this is a really challenging chapter, and it's a challenging chapter for me because it's not often that I stand up here and preach uh, a sermon that guys like John MacArthur and John Piper would disagree with, and that's happening today. And so I, I move forward cautiously knowing that there are people that I greatly respect that would disagree with how I'm approaching this chapter. And I want to tell you how I kind of got to this point, because I've taught wrongly about this chapter to some of you in this room before. I've explained these verses wrongly before, I believe. Um, and, and, and the way I reached that is that I was studying like normal, so my, my goal every time I speak is to never have to go back and change what I've taught previously. So I spend hours trying to prepare to make sure that what I speak is true to God's word and that I'm not going to ever back down from what I've said. So as I'm studying this chapter, and I've got MacArthur's stuff and Piper's stuff and kind of reading along with it, and I'm taking notes, and there got to a point yesterday morning where I just sat back and said, I don't believe this. I, I, don't, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is what Paul is saying. And so I pushed it aside and I said, okay, I'm going to get back to studying this on my own. And I began to write what I really believed Paul was trying to teach from this passage. And those of you that have sat in discipleship with me, I've told you before, if you're studying Scripture and you start to come to conclusions that are different from what you've been told previously, you need to make sure that you're not a heretic and you need to go find and see if there are good people that believe the same thing. And so I took what I believed and what I was seeing and being taught by the Holy Spirit from this chapter, and I said, i got to go find some people that, that agree with this. And so I began to search other godly men that I don't reference as much. People that I respect, I just don't have time. And I began to realize, hey, this is consistent. This is consistent with what other people are seeing in this chapter as well. In fact, if you ever come to my house, you know that I've got bookshelves. And on one entire shelf, it's probably this wide, there are books on that entire shelf that are dedicated to the book of Romans by one individual. 
So it's not, here's all my Romans commentaries, it's here's one man's commentaries on the book of Romans. So every commentary is on a chapter, and every book is as thick as the Bibles that you guys are holding up here. So chapter one's commentary is this thick. When I started pulling commentaries about how I was going to study, I said, I can't even look at this man's stuff. Like, we're trying to cover a chapter a week. It would take me two months to read his one book on chapter one. But I found that in his study, he agrees with, with what I want to teach you guys this morning from chapter seven. Um, and, and really what, what led me to, to being dissatisfied with what I've been taught before and what I was studying uh, from some of these other guys is that it seems really inconsistent with what is taught in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, just to kind of highlight some of the truth that we looked at last week. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul's preaching to us freedom freedom from sin, and in chapter 7, freedom from the law. And I want to give you what I believe Paul is trying to communicate to us through chapter 7. Now, back to what I'm saying that, that I disagree with how I previously viewed this chapter. In no way do we disagree, the people that are going to hold to what I say about the end of this chapter. So really it's in regards to what I had you guys discussing. Is the guy a Christian? Is he a non-Christian? Okay. Nobody, there, there's a lot of agreement uh, in the comments that people make, and we'll get into this more when we get there. The comments that people make about those, we all agree about. It's just a matter of what is that passage trying to teach? Is it trying to teach what we agree on in this aspect? Is it trying to teach what we agree on about this aspect? So we'll get into it more. So don't think that we've completely deviated and now we're preaching like a totally different doctrine it's just that I believe these verses are trying to teach us something different than what I previously thought. But I still agree with what I thought previously about just the truth in general. And I'll explain that more when we get to it. But I just didn't want you guys to, to panic as we get into this. Like, oh my gosh, like this might be heretical today. All right, so Romans chapter 7, we're dead to the law. As a believer, I've been set free from sin according to chapter 6. I've been set free from the law according to chapter 7, because I've died to both. Now, Paul starts off here in chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Which law is he talking about? He's obviously not talking about uh, governmental law, because he's going to go on here in the book of Romans telling us that we have to submit to the authorities that are placed over us, that we're to submit to governmental laws unless it violates God's commands. So there's a specific law that he has in mind here, I believe, and that would be the Mosaic law, the law that was given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. He says, I'm speaking to those of you who know the law, which implies that there's people present that are reading this letter that may not know the law. So he says, I'm speaking to those of you that know the law. He goes on later on, as we read, he addresses the idea of coveting. And we know that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not covet. So that also lends support to seeing this as the Ten Commandments or the law that he's talking about, this Old Testament uh, law that was given at Sinai. Paul says we've been set free from this law, meaning we have a new relationship to the law. So in your notes there, number one, my new relationship to the law. First, he illustrates the new relationship. He illustrates it by describing a husband and a wife and a second husband. Okay, He highlights the fact, now it's important to note up front Paul's not trying to give us a discourse on when divorce is right and when it's wrong. 
Okay, so that's not his purpose here. So we're not even discussing marriage, divorce, remarriage. That's not his point here. He's taking the aspect of marriage and the legal binding aspect to it to describe our relationship to the law. So he says, a, man, um, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Paul's using the picture of marriage law and the release from that law to help us better understand our relationship to the Mosaic law. The law is binding only on the living, and when death happens, it cancels the law. So you've got husband number one and wife, and they're married. And they're legally bound. They've signed a contract that was submitted to the courthouse. And they're married. And legally, the woman cannot leave that husband and go marry another husband. She's bound to this husband because the law says she is. Now, if the husband dies, she's set free from that law, right? Now she can go be joined to another man legally. And she can take that man to be her husband. So Paul's saying, as long as both parties are alive... There's, there's a binding there that happens legally. The law says they're married. She can't go marry somebody else. She can't go fill out a marriage certificate when she's married to somebody else. The law would frown upon that. But if death happens, she's set free. Paul says you were bound to the law. You were bound to the law. There was requirements that were placed upon you. But he says, believer, you've died to the law now. You've been set free from that relationship. And now that you've been set free... It opens up the door for a new relationship to where we can now be bound to Christ, Paul tells us. So he says, you're set free, you can now be bound to Christ. That's the picture that he's given us here in the first half of Romans chapter 7. That severed relationship now allows for a new bond or a new relationship to be possible. So that's the illustration. Second thing in your notes there, my relationship defined. He tells us exactly what he means by that. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Paul says we died to the law through Christ's death so that we might be joined to him. We're now responsible to obey Christ. He says we die to the old fruit that the law produced in us. Look what he says. When we were not saved in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He says as a non-believer, sin was working in your life and you were producing essentially what he calls poisoned fruit. It's fruit that kills. It's fruit that results in death. So he says, in your previous marriage, you as an unbeliever married to the law, your offspring was death. You produced bad fruit, fruit that was destructive. He says, but now that you've been joined to Christ, there's fruit that's produced for God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, some other passages that highlight this truth. For our sake he made him, talking about Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that new fruit that comes. Galatians 2, 19-20. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've said this before here. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to start producing good works. So there is a role that good works play in the life of a Christian. They come after salvation. They're the fruit that we bear now that we're in Christ and no longer subjected to the law. Because when we were subjected to the law, we produced that poisoned fruit. We are empowered now with new motivation to obey as we transition from the old written code to the new way of the Spirit. Let's look at what that means back in Romans 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, 
having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If I try to obey the law in myself, I will fail because sin still exists in me. If I strive to believe God through the Spirit, I will naturally obey the law. It's that newness of spirit. Now, let me, let me help you understand what that means. Under the old system, the way that we acted towards the law as unbelievers, we saw law as a list of rules to keep if we were going to be acceptable in God's eyes. So it was like somebody gave us a list of things of do's and don'ts. And our flesh reacts to that and says, I don't want to do that stuff. Somebody's telling me what to do. I like to tell myself what to do. So we react to that law. But essentially, we believe that the law tells us if we do these things, then we'll have eternal life. This new idea of walking in the Spirit, the mindset is, I believe what God says about his law. That his laws are good. They are designed for my good. They're designed for specific purposes. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's the best way to live life. It's the best way to live life. And I walk empowered by the Spirit now, not just trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts, but really trying to believe what God says. And we've talked about this over the past few months. It's the idea of believing God and his promises. That's how Abraham was saved, right? Abraham wasn't saved because he got circumcised. He wasn't saved because he left his home. It says he was saved because he believed God. He believed God's promises. And that led to good works in his life. It led him to obey in circumcision. It led him to obey by leaving his home. But ultimately, it was all about the belief that he had. I believe what God is telling me. Remember when he comes to him and gives him that Abrahamic covenant, God doesn't say, okay, Abraham, I want to make a great nation out of you, but here's what I need you to do. Get circumcised, leave your land, do this, do this, do this. He doesn't do that. God comes to him and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. He gives him all these promises, and he says, Abraham, believe me. Believe those promises. And that's the essence of the gospel. It's that we quit doing things, and we start believing things. We start trusting in what God says to us versus us trying to earn his favor by our performance. Paul says under this new system, we're walking in the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So what does it ultimately mean to die to the law? Three things here. When we talk about us being dead to the law, it means that I'm set free from the legal demands of the law. Okay, so the law says do this and you'll live. Only problem is none of us can be obedient to the law. James says if you break one, one aspect of the law, you're guilty of breaking the law and you deserve death. Romans says the wages of sin is death in chapter 6. So I'm set free from the legal demands of the law. What we'll see next week in more detail, Romans 8, 4, Christ was sent in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Romans 8, 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If you're a believer here this morning, you've been set free from the law and its legal demands. You do not have to keep it perfectly to enjoy heaven with Christ one day. Christ has already kept it for you. He's met the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. And by believing in Christ, your perfect, his perfection comes to you, and it becomes your perfection now. So that when you stand before God one day, you enter into his presence because you are perfect, because Christ kept the law for you. Next, I'm set free from the condemnation of the law. So I've got the positive aspect, Christ keeps the law for me, but Christ also died in my place. The law says that I deserve death because I broke it. Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation now for the believer, that Christ has satisfied God's wrath on, on behalf of me. So I'm set free from that. I don't have to live in fear that one day wrath is going to come upon me, that I'm going to spend even a day in hell because there's no condemnation for me as a believer. I've been set free from it. I also don't have to wake up every morning and think, if I don't do this right and I don't do this right, God's going to stop loving me. I don't have to worry about that. I have favor in God's eyes because of what Christ has done for me. I'm set free from having to keep the law to earn God's favor. Lastly, I'm now free to obey Christ by believing his promises. It's not a list of rules the list of promises thou shalt not covet 
prior to salvation looks like a, a, a thing not to do. After salvation, not coveting, it's a promise that God is going to give me exactly what I need that I can rely on him and what he gives me is sufficient. So it's a promise, not a don't. Thou shalt not covet flows from a promise of I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. You don't need to want what other people have. I'm going to give you exactly what you need. Believe me, trust me. That's the promise aspect of the law. And we're empowered to see those promises and believe those promises as believers, just like Abraham in the Old Testament. We're set free from obeying a list of rules, and we now believe it as promises. There's a new motivation there, a new power because of the Holy Spirit. So that's my new relationship to the law. Let's look at the law's old relationship to me, because Paul highlights that as well here in chapter 7. The law's old relationship to me. Letter A in your notes there, the law condemns men to death for their sin. Verse 13 Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul asked the question. He he did some question asking in chapter 6, right? Should we continue in sin? Is it okay to keep sinning as a Christian? No, no. Now he says, is the law sinful? Because it sounds like it is. It sounds like a bad thing. Like, let's get away from this bad law. And Paul says the law is not bad. It's not sinful. And it's not the source of our death. A couple things to write down here about the law. Paul says what the law does do is it provokes sin. It provokes sin. There's an indwelling sin that's in us because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And then when the law comes into play, it stirs up our sin. It, 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 it creates more sinful desires in us. Oh, here's more, more uh, rules and laws to be disobedient towards. The law provokes sin. The sin nature produces more sinful behavior. It's the idea that now I know it's sin, I want to do it. Now that I know that's wrong, for some reason I can't keep my mind off of thinking about doing that. That's how our flesh works a lot of times. That's how our sin works a lot of times. Once we hear something's wrong... For the first time, we have desires to do some of those things. Our, our, our sin reacts to the wrong now. Um, there's all kinds of illustrations that we could use for that. Just, just the idea that now that I'm aware that something's wrong, all of a sudden I'd really like to at least entertain the idea of why can't I do that? Why should I not do that? Paul says that's how the law works. It provokes sin. The sin's already there. It just kind of stirs it up. The picture I got was, you see a spider in a spider web just kind of chilling out real quiet, right? Then you start kind of tapping on its web with a stick. And that thing comes to life, right? You stir that thing up. It was always there. That stick just provokes it, makes it come to life. That's what the law does to our sin. The sin is there. We're sinful because we were born that way. But the more we learn, the more do's and don'ts we hear in our life, the more we have the opportunity to react to it sinfully. And our sin takes advantage of that, Paul tells us. The law defines sin for us. So here's some some things that the law does do. It provokes sin. It doesn't cause sin. It's not the source of sin, but it does stir sin up. It also defines sin. Paul says, I would not have known coveting was wrong had I not been told thou shalt not covet. It brings the knowledge of sin. We've highlighted this in Romans 3 and Romans 4 and Romans 5. The idea that men aren't held accountable to what they don't know. They're held accountable to what they do know. So there's people that have less knowledge of God's will than we do. We are probably the most accountable of anybody that's ever walked the earth. So the fact that you live in Georgia with all of the biblical resources and podcasts and books and pastors and conferences everything that's available to you, you don't have to worry if you're in the group that's not going to be held accountable because you are going to be held extremely accountable. There's people in Africa who don't have scripture yet in their language. They're still held accountable, just not to the same level, Paul tells us. There's things that they don't know that's sin until it's revealed to them as sin. Now, they're sinful, and if they ever found out that it was sin, their sin nature would react to it and start doing it. But Paul says, I didn't know coveting was wrong until I found out that it was wrong. And then I realized 
hey, I want to do that some more. He says, my sin nature was kind of stirred up, and, and, I, and I started coveting like crazy, he tells us. He says, um, uh, verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So third thing there in your notes, the law is used by sin to cause sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says that the power of sin is the law. See, sin is breaking law, right? It's missing God's holy standard. So sin needs law if it's going to continue to increase. So the more law that's there, the more sin can happen. It's the, if you've ever read, how many of y'all read Pilgrim's Progress before? Okay. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's a scene where Pilgrim is, is being shown scriptural truth through different illustrations, and he comes to a room that's full of dust. And an individual comes in there and tries to clean up the room, and the dust pictures sin. It's a picture of sin. And so the maid comes in there and tries to clean it up and begins to sweep. And if you've ever cleaned a room like that, you know all you're doing is kicking the dust up. And he says that when they pull the blinds back, and the sun comes in, you see that the dust hasn't gone anywhere. It's not left the room. It's still there. It's just been kicked up into the, into the air. The only way to get rid of the dust, according to the book and, and according to the gospel as well, is that the person has to come in with water. And they start to shoot the water, and it clumps up the dust, and it falls to the ground in big balls, and they're able to get the dust out. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't clean our sin up with the law. The law represents that broom. All it does is kick up the sin. All it does is stir it up. It's a good thing. It shows us our sin. It doesn't fix us, though. So the law provokes it. It defines it. It uses, uh, it's used by sin to cause more sin. The implication there is that sin lies dormant, both in our awareness and its extent, until we become more aware of the law. It lies dormant, both in our awareness and its extent. It doesn't mean that Paul never coveted before until he heard that it was wrong to covet. It just means that he wasn't aware that it was sinful. And then once he was aware, it started to happen more frequently because his rebellious nature rebelled against that law and he began to covet more. That's how the law is used by sin to produce more sin. So the law condemns men to death, but letter B in your notes there, the law has no power to redeem someone from their sin. It has no power to redeem someone from their sin. Look what he says in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The law is spiritual, but man is carnal. We're sold under sin because of what Adam did in the garden. Then Paul begins to describe an individual. Could be a saved person, could be an unsaved person, but he describes an individual nonetheless. He describes an individual who is trying to obey the law, but the man is unable to prevent wrong in his life. Verse 15 through 17. I do not understand my own actions, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So this individual cannot stop bad things from happening in his life. He also can't do what's right. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. And the troubling thing is that he's not sure why. He's not sure why. And I think this starts to give us a clue as to understanding who this person is. Verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. That word for understand is the same word that we use for when a man knows his wife and like really knows her, like intimately. He says, I don't have an intimate understanding of why I'm doing this. I don't understand my actions. Uh, and, I, and I think that gives us an indication of where he's at spiritually. He says, I don't know. I don't understand why I do what I do. Now, I think I skipped over um, three things about the law. If you want to add these to your notes real quick. The law is not sinful. The law is not the cause of death. And the law reveals the depths of sin in us. 
So Paul tells us, he says, I was alive apart from the law. But the more I learned about the law, the more sinful I became. Now this happened in his context as a Jewish boy at his bar mitzvah. Anybody know what happens at the bar mitzvah for a Jewish boy, at least in the original context? I think it's probably abused today and it's just a birthday party type thing for, for some. But in the original context, what did the bar mitzvah imply? Okay, yeah, there was, there was the idea of him becoming a man. And in relationship to the law, the obligations now counted for him. He was now held accountable to the law. That's where the age of accountability has kind of flown from, right? So, like, you go, you go to Scripture, and you don't see, like, a specific age that we're now, okay, you're okay until this age, and then after this age, you really need to get saved, or else you're going to be held accountable to God. We don't really have a specific age in Scripture as to when that happens, but a lot of times people say 12, 13. I think that probably comes from the idea of bar mitzvah because at the age of 13, this boy was now considered a man and he had to keep the law. The obligations were now placed upon him. He needed to take sole responsibility himself for the actions that he was uh, choosing to do. Paul says, before that, I didn't have the obligations of the law. But once I was educated in the law, my sin took advantage of that and became more sinful. So the law has no power to redeem someone from their sin. Who is this man of Romans chapter 7? All right, here's, the, here's what we agree on. Um, everybody agrees, whether you see him as a, as a saved person or an unsaved person, everybody agrees that Christians still struggle with sin. Okay? So it's not a, well, if this person's an unbeliever, then that means Christians actually get to a point where they don't struggle with sin. That's not the case. Everybody that, that has studied this passage that's an evangelical believer would say, Christians still struggle with sin. We don't ever get to the point here on this earth before Jesus comes back that we're perfect. Okay, so we always will struggle with sin. There's also the agreement that Christians can experience victory over sin. So Romans chapter 6 says we are uh, set free from sin. So everybody agrees that there's victory to be uh, gained over sin. The other, the third agreement is that our misery or our discouragement is not based on the law because the law is not bad. It's based on our indwelling sin, that, that remaining sin that we're waiting for Jesus to come back and fix with glorification. So that's an agreement. Okay, so you may not agree with my conclusion about who this man is, but ultimately we agree with all the truths that come out of this passage. Christians still struggle with sin. Um, Christians can be victorious over sin, and that the law is not bad. It's we that are bad, okay? Now, option number one, this person is an unregenerate person or an unsaved person. This is option number one. He's an unsaved person. A lot of people would read this and say this person is unsaved, and here's some supporting reasons for that. The heavy connection to the flesh that Paul describes here. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This idea is typically not good in other passages that Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 If I, uh, no. Hmm. Wrote down the wrong verse there. Try to come back to it. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and then it begins to list all this evil. So the flesh is typically viewed as bad. Living in the flesh is typically viewed as bad, right? Um, First, it's not 1 Corinthians 13, one of the passages that I wanted to read to you. Uh, Paul says, I can't speak to you guys as mature Christians because you are so fleshly, because you are in the flesh. To where he's either describing them as an unbeliever or at best a really immature believer. So the flesh connection is not a good thing here. The aspects of being in bondage to sin, it's contrary to what Romans 6 teaches us, right? Bondage to sin is the idea that seems to be going on here, some would say. Uh, verse 23. 
I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It's contrary to the verses that we read previously in chapter 6. While this guy's definitely struggling with sin, another supporting aspect here is that there doesn't necessarily seem to be a release from sin like it's described in chapter 6. There's repeated failure that's described here. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Seems to be more of a habitual thing there. I keep on doing the sin. First John says, if you're a believer, spirit dwells in you. You cannot continue in sin. Verse 25, we just read it a minute ago, but he says, I serve the law of sin. That word for serve, it's to serve as a slave. Romans 6 says, I'm no longer a slave to sin. This individual talking says, I serve the law of sin. You would also expect, if this was talking about a Christian, that in verse 14, it would start with, but we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Basically, uh, this is generally true, but let's remember, we're going to still struggle with sin. But the conjunction that's used there is for, and the meaning in the original Greek there is, let me continue to expound upon what I've been talking about in verses 1 through 13. Nobody disputes the fact that the guy in verses 1 through 13 is an unbeliever, that he is sold under sin, that he is uh, unresponsive in the right way to the law and to the gospel. So that conjunction for, the supporting aspect here to it being an unsaved person, is that it continues the same thought process as 1 through 13. The shift really seems to happen in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul begins to describe what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, and live victoriously from sin. So the conclusion for this option is, the person described is not relying on the Holy Spirit, because there's no mention of the Holy Spirit here in this struggle, right? You don't ever see this person saying that through the Holy Spirit I'm fighting my sin. It's just a lot of I and me and myself. So the conclusion here is this person described as not relying on the Holy Spirit, and it pictures the defeat that comes from law-keeping. So a lot of people would say this person's not saved. It's somebody who's trying to keep the law and ultimately is a failure at trying to do that. There's no Holy Spirit empowerment. He's sold under sin. He's in bondage to his sin. He's a slave to his sin. Everything that is a Christian we're supposedly rescued from, right? Second option, number two, is that it's a regenerate person or a saved person. The support for this view is that the, the first person, I, is used in verse 14, which seems to indicate this is Paul in the present tense. In fact, you may pick up on this if you really look at it, there's a shift from past tense to present tense at verse 14. So if Paul's talking about himself, 1 through 13 is his past before he was a believer. Verse 14, he starts to talk in the present tense, which would indicate this is now me as a mature believer. Paul describes the, the mindset here where he serves with his mind, where we know that Scripture says that a lost person is opposed in their mind to God. When Paul describes his previous life in other passages, like in Philippians 3, he never mentions any type of internal despair. Remember, at the, at the end of this, he's crying out, oh, wretched man that I am. In Philippians 3, he says, um, Philippians 3, he says that he was really content where he was spiritually as a Jewish person, right? Like he was clinging to all this Jewishness that he thought was going to save him. So it would be inconsistent to say that all of a sudden Paul's now showing that he had this internal despair as an unsaved person. So it supports the fact that it's describing a saved individual. Um, it talks about his love for the law, right? He says that I know what's good, I love what's good, I just can't seem to do what's good. The Bible would say that a, a lost person doesn't love God's law typically. Have you ever met a lost person that loves God's law and, and wants to keep God's law? I have. I have. I've had individuals sit in my home that were followers of other religions, spinoffs from Christianity, perverted forms of Christianity that want to impose law upon my family. 
We love God's law. We love God. We want to serve God. We want to obey his law because by obeying his law, we earn God's favor. I guarantee you those people as lost people would say, I love God's law. So that's kind of a rebuttal to this argument that, well, this person is describing a love for God's law. I guarantee you that Paul would have said he loved God's law before he was converted in Damascus or on his way to Damascus. He was a Pharisee. He taught God's law. He certainly had a, 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 a form of love for it. The people that support this view would say the struggle and groans are for glorification. It's, yes, I'm saved, I'm fighting sin, but ultimately I want that day to come where sin goes away completely and I get a new body. The conclusion to this group, uh, for this view, is the person described as following the normal pattern of Christianity where we struggle in our victory. person described as following the normal pattern of Christianity where we struggle in our victory. Now there's some dangers with these two conclusions. The first danger, if it's an unregenerate person, we might could make the conclusion that, well, if this person's not a Christian struggling with his sin, then Christians must be expected to get to a point where they're perfect. The danger with seeing him as a saved person is twofold. Either this is the best we get. A man who is so discouraged in his, in his walk with Christ that, that he seems to despair. Or we get the person who says, as long as I'm serving him with my mind, I'm okay. Right? Because that seems to kind of be where it's left at the end of chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's almost as though we've reached a point where this is what it's supposed to be. Until Jesus comes back, I'm going to always be in this intense struggle of wanting to do right, but not really doing right. Or not wanting to do wrong, but continuing to do wrong. So the danger there is that we, we, we encourage people that it's okay to be struggling with their sin. Because look, the best Christian we ever knew, Paul potentially, was still in that type of mindset. And there's option number three. Option number two is where I was for a long time, and it's what I was taught, and it's what people that I, I trust greatly would hold to, that this is a regenerate, mature, normal Christian. Like, this is what we're to be shooting for, that we're to be dead to the law, but that even in being dead to the law and dead to sin, we're going to exist in this state of mind where we don't do the things that we want to do, and we do the things that we don't want to do. Now, in moving away from that viewpoint, I'm not again suggesting that Christians don't struggle with sin. It's true. There are days where I don't do what I want to do, and I do the very things that I don't want to do. But to me, I look at this, and I'm using it in the context of our church. So as I sit with individuals in our church, and they're battling sin, where I became dissatisfied with seeing this as a mature Christian is, what does this individual have to say to somebody who is struggling with sin in our church? Because it seems to be that he's reached mature status and he doesn't have a whole lot of hope to offer. It's, let me be honest with you, buddy, I still don't do the things that I want to do and I still do the things that I don't want to do. And I got real dissatisfied with, and this guy's not, this guy needs to be in an accountability group with his pastor, right? Like, this doesn't sound like mature Christian to me. This sounds like the guy that needs serious help. I can't send this guy to go counsel with people that are not doing the things that they want to do and doing the very things that they don't want to do. And that's where I, be, I just really began to wrestle with it. And I said, I don't see how this can be what I'm supposed to shoot for. There's got to be something different because what I'm reading in chapter 6 is that I've been dead to sin and I've been released from sin and I'm no longer sold to sin and I don't have to listen to my flesh. And then when you get into Romans 8, and I don't want to steal what we're going to talk about next week, but you get into Romans 8, and that pattern continues. That we've been set free. Look what he says in um, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Look what he says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To me, that seems to be in direct conflict with where we're left in chapter 7. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. As he goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, seemingly, if you're serving the law of sin, you're headed towards death. This is not where you need to go. So let me give you the third option of what I really think is going on in this passage. I think it's a person who doesn't understand the law. We could be talking about a saved person or an unsaved person. To me, it doesn't really matter. What we are talking about, I believe, in studying this passage, it's someone who doesn't understand the right relationship to the law. This can be an unsaved person who's trying to earn their way to heaven. It can be a saved person who's continuing to try to go back to the law. Because that's possible, right? Like in the New Testament, Paul and Peter have to warn specifically Jewish believers, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to the law. The law does not save you. It's a person who doesn't understand the law. The law is powerless because you are weak in the flesh. Without the Spirit, we can't carry out God's will. But with the Spirit, we can live an enjoyable, victorious life. See, what I gain from what's going on in this guy's mindset is I have the desire, but I don't have the will to be obedient. That seems to be really what's going on there. Up here, it all seems to be clicking. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm not supposed to do. But when it comes to practically doing it, I do the opposite. So it seems to be kind of left with, I've got the mindset to do it. I don't have the will to do it. But when I look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13, I see a promise that I'll be given the will and the ability to carry out what God wants from me. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, I'm afraid sometimes we go to Romans chapter 7 and we've been taught this is mature Christian and we're allowed to flounder in our sin of, well, at least it's clicking up here. Like it's not translating as much as it needs to in my life, but thanks be to God, Paul didn't have it figured out either kind of thing. And I don't know that Paul's trying to suggest that to us. Again, we're not suggesting that Christians don't struggle with sin. They do. I think Paul teaches that. I think Paul continually teaches that, that we struggle with sin. But the depth of sin that this individual seems to be wrestling with in Romans chapter 7 does not seem to be consistent with mature Christian status that he describes in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 7, man, seems to be under the feeling of condemnation, which is why Romans 8, 1 starts with, there is no condemnation. A mature Christian doesn't necessarily need to hear that right off the bat, right? Like, if this is mature Paul, he knows he's not condemned, but it flows right out of this. There's no condemnation for the believer. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, again, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So again, I believe that Romans chapter 7 is teaching us that there's a relationship to the law that no longer exists for the believer. That he's dead to it. We're saved from having to obey it from the righteous requirements of it. We don't have to obey it to get saved. Christ has obeyed it for us. We're not condemned by it. We're not condemned by it. Christ has bore our wrath for us. But we're also free to obey now because we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from all the condemnation and the requirements of the law. We're now empowered by the Spirit. We're empowered by the Spirit, again, to believe promises, to believe the promises that come with the laws. And I believe that what happens in Romans 8, 1 is that Paul tells us it's, it's very possible for us to live victoriously. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law weakened by the flesh, 
could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The, the application for us. There's no holiness by trying to keep the law the old way. There's no holiness by trying to keep the law the old way. We must now live in the Spirit to walk in faith and obedience. There's no holiness by trying to keep the law the old way. We must now live in the Spirit to walk in faith and obedience. Galatians 5, 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, so he kind of sets that, that standard back up again, right? You've got the, the Spirit that now lives inside of you, and it's opposed to your sinful flesh, right? And so there's a battle going on there. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Verse 18. But you are led by the Spirit. You are not under the law. Then he describes the works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let me close by telling you how I think this practically looks in my own life because this is stuff that I'm wrestling with. Like, How do I take this truth of being set free from sin and set free from the law and encourage obedience? So I was thinking about A.J., and most dads that I talk to, one of our greatest fears is having to have the talk with our son, right? Like, we're fearful of it. We're fearful because we're hoping that before the talk, he doesn't know what we're talking about. And there's also the fear that when we talk to him about it, it's going to do exactly what Paul says. Now that you know, it arouses all kinds of curiosity, Right? And so my fear, and we've talked about this in some of our men's groups, how do I have the talk with AJ without creating or arousing sin in his life? Because I want to be faithful to use the law rightly. And, you know, I'm coming at the approach of if, if AJ's a believer, how do I talk to him? How do I communicate God's laws to him in such a way that it doesn't arouse sin in his life and it doesn't impose law on his life. How do I teach him the freedom to enjoy God and believe God that naturally produces this fruit of the Spirit? Because when we talk about law, again, do's and don'ts. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, that's not tangible stuff, really. That's, that's, that's who we become. Again, that's that newness of the Spirit. And so I've been kind of thinking through, well, how does this look for me to talk to AJ? Or even how does this look for me to talk to other men who are struggling in this area? I can impose law and say, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. And that's right. It's wrong. There's laws against that. But to me, that's the old way of the law. Don't do it. Don't do it. And if AJ hears, don't do it, I think it creates an arousal in him of, why should I not do it? And maybe I should do it. I remember when I really understood what the talk was. And I was sheltered my life, and I'm not embarrassed to say it. I didn't understand what the talk was until I made it to college. And that is far later in life than it should ever be for an individual. We had a brief little talk in sixth grade, and I missed it. And then I didn't really get informed about it until college. And I remember that when I really understood it, there was sin arousal there that had not been there before. And I was hearing, don't, don't, don't. When I communicate to AJ, 
the appropriate way, I think, with the law. I want him to believe God's promises about that topic. I want him to believe that God has definite good plans for him, that God has created it and that God has designed it for good, that God has also given instructions about how to do it, how not to do it, that are for our good. But I want him to respond not with, all right, I've been told about the greatest thing ever, and I've been told to wait 15 years potentially before I get to enjoy it. I want him to embrace it as, I've been told about a promise, a promise that I can believe in and trust in. My dad has informed me about something that is waiting for me, not something that I can't enjoy, but something that I get to enjoy in the right context. And I want him to live walking by the Spirit because he's believing the promises that God has communicated through his law. And I want to draw men in our church and and others in our church back to this idea that, hey, when we're messing up in this area, when we're falling in this area, it's not do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. It's believe God's promises about this. Walk in the Spirit and be a man who puts to death the deeds of the body. Not because you're told to, but because you believe it's the best thing possible for your life. That you embrace these promises of God that he has good intended for you. And he communicates that good through law. And that we don't have to obey it. You know, pr- previously I would have had this talk with AJ and I would have said, and buddy, every time you mess up, you've got to kill an animal for this. Right? Like you've got to sacrifice animals to make up for your sin. No, AJ, here's what it is. And buddy, you're probably going to fall at times. And while that's not okay, it's expected. And God expected it. And that's why he sent his son Christ to die for you. Because he knew you couldn't be pure in this area until you got married. Even in action, if you're pure, in thought, you're going to be impure at some point. And AJ, you can rest knowing that there is no condemnation because you're a believer. And that Christ has satisfied the wrath for you. And he's obeyed perfectly for you. And he remained pure in this area until the day he died. And you can pursue purity in this area because God has promised things to you. And he can embrace God's law the way I think it's meant to be embraced now as a believer. That we follow Christ obediently. That we submit to him as our king. Today's Palm Sunday when Christ rode in, he was proclaimed as a king. And we submit to him as a king. We're dead to the law. We're dead to our sin. We're called to submit to him now, that new relationship. We were joined to the law, we're dead to the law. We're now joined to Christ. We're called to be obedient to him. I'm going to pray for us, and, and Tyson's going to come and, and play here briefly, and we want to give you guys just a time to reflect today. Because if we're believers here this morning, even the most mature believer this, this morning, we struggle with sin, and we're fighting sin. And I want to give you some time to contemplate the sins that you're struggling with right now and what promises you're not believing in those areas. Is it, is it discontentment in your life? Is it sexual issues in your life? Pride issues in your life? Not finding your security and identity in who Christ is and who he's called you to be? All of us have different struggles, and we're going to continue to struggle until Christ comes back. But I don't think we're allotted the, the mindset to, to think it's Okay. We're called to fight that sin and put that sin to death because we're dead to it. I think what's described in Romans 8 is a victorious type lifestyle where we still struggle with sin. But because of the Holy Spirit, we're being empowered to be obedient. So I want to give you guys some time to reflect on the goodness of God, the promises that God's made before we pray together.
Father, we thank you for the word this morning. We thank you that as believers, we have been set free from sin and we've been set free from the law. And that you filled us with your spirit to follow you in obedience. God, I pray that you would, as you're working out our salvation in us, and you're giving us the will and the ability to work. Father, I pray that you would empower us to believe the promises that you've made to us. God, I pray that you would destroy any any lingering mindset that we have that our acceptance before you is based on our performance. God, help us to see that that detracts from the work on the cross. So, Father, we thank you this morning that Christ has earned that favor and acceptance for us if we've put our faith and trust in him. God, I pray that we would know it and reckon it and yield it to be true in our life, that we have been crucified with Christ. And we're dead to sin and we don't have to go back to it. We don't have to allow sin to be our slave master. God, we don't have to view the law as a list of do's and don'ts that arouse our flesh. But through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can see that your laws are good. They're life-giving, not because they give us our salvation, but because they allow us to enjoy this life. God, help us to see that you designed creation, you designed our life, and you've given us the instruction manual to how to enjoy it. God, help us to see your laws in that context. And Father, I pray that we would respond to your laws in faith, not in our own efforts to to do good. Father, I pray for those that are still in bondage to sin this morning, that are still in bondage to a a works-based mentality to the law. Father, that you would save them this morning, that you would use the Holy Spirit to draw them to conviction, that they would see their sin and the depth of their sin in relationship to the gospel. Father, you would uh, awaken them to the good news of Christ. They would submit their lives to you. Father, we pray for our church as we continue to move forward fighting sin, that we would experience the victory that you've promised us, that we would continue to fight as we anxiously wait for the day that Jesus comes back for us. When we can experience that ultimate final freedom from all of the pain and suffering that sin causes. We praise you and thank you this morning. We look forward to celebrating the resurrection next week. Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts to teach us further from Romans chapter 8. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.